Hi, I'm Zhang Mei, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China. Each episode, we visit a different destination in China with a special guest. And when we say a destination, it can be as big as a province, or sometimes as small as a village, or sometimes it may be a field of study, or simply a way of life. Today, our guest is UK-based writer Fuchsia Dunlop, an old friend of Wild China. Fuchsia grew up in Oxford, studied at Cambridge University, Sichuan University in China, and later at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. She first became interested in China through an editing job at the BBC, which led her to take evening classes in Mandarin and eventually to win a British Council scholarship to study for a year in the Sichuanese capital Chengdu. Where she was the first Westerner to train as a chef at the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine. That reminds me of Julia Child in Paris. Now that brings us to today, where Fuchsia Dunlop is a world famous food writer specializing in Chinese cuisine. I can say this because I've seen and met followers of hers from all over the U.S., U.K., of course, and today many in China. She has authored six books, and I hear a seventh is in the works. And if you haven't, I highly encourage you to go and check out the award-winning Land of Fish and Rice: Recipes from the Culinary Heart of China, which is a collection of recipes from the Lower Yangtze region in eastern China. And my favorite, I have to say, is shark's fin and citron pepper. Because it's such a beautiful account of her adventures into exploring Chinese food and how she became a writer. There are a few others. I think the food of Sichuan would be the go-to for anybody who fancies a Sichuan dish. So really, I can say no one, no one has done more to make Chinese cooking accessible to the Western world than Fuchsia. So thank you, Fuchsia. Both for writing about Chinese food and also for making the time. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's good to be here with you. Now, Fuchsia, I know you first visited China and fell in love with Chinese food in 1992, right? And I recall you telling me that your first step into Chinese cooking was really as an eater, but then you started wandering into these little restaurants in Chengdu and asked the chef if you could. Go into the kitchen, learn how to make a bowl of noodle soup or dumpling or whatever. And when I heard that, when I also read about it, I could totally see that happening in China, in Yunnan also, right? It's the the kind of human relationship between people is so different when you go there and visit and live there. And I think. That's something that strikes me about your writing about Chinese food is the human angle. So I'm gonna ask: Did you think about this consciously? How did you find your niche? Because there were so many English cookbooks on Chinese food, Chinese cookbooks on Chinese food. How did you decide sort of to take the human angle into the writing? Was this a conscious decision? Um, I mean, writing a cookbook. In a way, I started writing a cookbook before I actually started writing a cookbook. So, right from the first days in Sichuan University in 1994, I started collecting recipes and writing notes about Sichuanese cuisine in my diary. 
which is something that I had done since I was a teenager. So that wasn't really a conscious decision. I just loved the food and wanted to write about it. And then similarly, when I decided, you know, I was eating this stunningly delicious food every night in little restaurants around Sichuan University that was far more delicious and exciting and fresh than any Chinese food I've had before in London. And, you know, as someone who'd been a keen cook since I was very small, I just wanted to learn how to make it. And I hadn't a clue because, of course, you know, the basic building blocks of Chinese cuisine, the knife skills, the, the way you mix flavors, the use of a wok, all totally different from what I'd learned till then, which was mainly a sort of French, European style cooking. And so, you know, Chengdu, as anyone who's been there will tell you, is the, the most welcoming and friendly place. And I think people always fall in love with it, whether they're foreigners or, or Chinese from other parts of China. And certainly all my foreign university classmates and I, you know, we all adored Chengdu and none of us have lost that connection, you know, 30 years on. But we lived in a neighborhood around the university, which was welcoming. And I think um, at that time, there were very few foreigners in China. So we were really the object of great curiosity by local people who just hadn't met foreigners before. So people just wanted to chat, noticed what we were doing, were very curious. And so in that context, going to the boss of restaurants where I was eating every other day with my friends and saying, look, I love your food, and I'm really interested in cooking. Would it be possible to just learn to cook a few dishes. And people really often said yes. I mean, it was partly that it was really freaky to have a foreigner who was interested in cooking. Also a woman, because you know most Chinese chefs are men and that the kitchen is a very male environment, but also a university student, because you know people don't regard kitchen work as very prestigious in China and they think that universities are very impressive. So the idea that you have a university graduate who's a woman and a foreigner who really wants to be getting dirty in the kitchen and learning how to make a fish or something, I think people just found it rather funny and rather intriguing. And so we're often inclined to say, yeah, come and give it a go. So then I started just noting down recipes really for my own reference because I wanted to learn how to cook myself. Um, so that's how it started. And from there, you know, with a German friend, we persuaded this famous local cooking school to give us some private classes. So we did private classes, just the two of us, quite early on. And at that stage, we had the sort of kid glove, kid glove treatment. You know, we had a translator. We didn't do the washing up. I mean, there were private classes specially laid on. But after that, when I finished at the university, then I went back really to say hello to my teachers and they said, we have this professional chef's training course, you know, beginning, why don't you start? And actually, I mean, I've wanted to go to cooking school since I was a teenager. So I just jumped at the opportunity. And I can't really remember at what stage I wanted to write a cookbook. But certainly when I came back to England, it was at that time, and I know it seems hard to believe now because Sichuanese cuisine is so popular, but sort of 25 years ago, like in a big cosmopolitan city like London, we didn't really have any Sichuan restaurants. You couldn't buy good Sichuan pepper. There weren't really any Sichuan cookbooks. And so, you know, I'd just come back from, you know, a year or two in this amazing place with the most fabulous food that I knew everyone back home would love. And there wasn't really any information about it in English. And so 
I put together a proposal and sent it to publishing houses. The first time it was rejected by everyone and they all replied and said, oh, we think that it's too narrow and specialist. Yeah, not realising that Sichuan was the size of a European country, you know, a really great distinctive tradition. But then I was very lucky because a year later I tried again and I wrote a better proposal and I sent it to two publishers and they both wanted the book. But I suppose, you know, what you're asking about the human angle, I mean, firstly, my own learning about Chinese food had been and still is so much about learning from amazing people you know, who are so skilled and so generous, and many of whom now I have relationships with going back decades. And so it was partly wanting to sort of honour them and sort of just do something that they would appreciate as well and that would be helpful to them. But also, I think if you're trying to introduce people to a sort of unfamiliar cuisine, I really wanted to present it in the context of, you know, a place that I loved, people that I really liked. And so it just came very naturally to sort of tell stories about the food and sort of describe who taught me this particular recipe to try to bring it alive. That makes total sense. Because when it comes down to the human stories, it's much easier to relate rather than these ingredients or this, this big cleaver that I'm not familiar with. I mean, many of us encounter foreign cuisines through friends or, you know, people inviting you for dinner and giving you something new. And I think to a certain extent, you can also do that through writing. It's like trying to invite someone into a kitchen to meet people, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. So go back to all the years. How long have you been writing now? When did the first book come out again? So the first book came out in 2001. But I had started the research without knowing it in 1994, and I started writing it probably in 1997 or something. Yeah, so it's like a good 25 years span of writing about Chinese food. If you were to look back, what are the major milestones in your cookbook writing career that stood out to you? Well, obviously, the first book is the biggest milestone because I never thought that I would have the discipline to write an actual book. <laughs> and, um, and also, it's just sort of, it's an amazing moment. I, you know me, I know you've written a book too, but when you actually hold a book in your hands, it's just a sort of, it's, it's quite a shocking and wonderful thing. Um, so I suppose that, and then also Shark's Fin and Sichuan Pepper. So that was not a cookbook, but a sort of memoir, like a travel adventure, but trying to both tell my own story of learning to cook and eat Chinese food, but also sort of ask questions about, you know, what it's like to sort of try and give up all your cultural barriers when it comes to food and just be totally open-minded and open-mouthed and how that changes you and also what it's like to become deeply involved in another culture that makes you question where you come from. So that was another milestone. And then also, I suppose, for me, it's been incredible and such a surprise having my books translated into Chinese because this was not the purpose. I mean, I originally, what I was trying to do was introduce Chinese food and culinary traditions and culture to Westerners who didn't know much about it. And I never imagined that I'd be writing for Chinese people. So it's been this rather delightful surprise. And I'm very interested that Chinese readers they seem to find it rather fascinating to have an outsider's view of their own culture, because, of course, as an outsider, 
you often notice things differently and you notice things that people for whom it's just the daily background just take for granted. I mean, I've written a lot about the texture of food and that for a foreigner is something that's very different and distinctive about Chinese cuisine and particularly interesting. And for Chinese people, it's just part of daily life. And I don't think people necessarily think about it that much. And also because, of course, you know, what I'm trying to do is through food, in a way, promote appreciation and cultural understanding. And it's nice that it's going both ways now. And, you know, I feel that I'm trying to get Westerners to sort of rethink some of their opinions about Chinese food. But at the same time, perhaps you know, asking Chinese people to take another look at, you know, some of their own preconceptions. So that's become a very interesting angle that I, I never anticipated. Very well known in Chinese language, the Shark's Fins memoir book. What are the main points that the Chinese readers often point to that struck you as completely a surprise? Well, one thing is that, you know, the early chapters are very much about Chengdu and this city that I fell in love with. And in the 1990s, it was still a city of old lanes full of these wood and bamboo houses and tea houses and craftspeople. And it was just completely fascinating. And one thing that has surprised me is that young Sichuanese people love reading about this because, of course, the whole city's been redeveloped and has changed out of all recognition and is now very modern and you know glitzy. And so for them, it makes them feel kind of nostalgic reading about this old Chengdu. I've noticed that as well. In fact, our guides in Sichuan, they all talk to me about reading your book. And they said, we know that street that she's talking about. And that sense of nostalgia, and some of them are probably younger, actually, than the time when you were there. Even though the outside landscape of the city has changed, the essence of the way people live has somewhat maintained. And so to them, it's comforting to read that. And how is the same book, let's say, received in the West that stood out for you? I'm just curious about this comparison. When the book came out a lot of the reviews they were very focused on the extraordinary things that i'd eaten so you know chinese people eat an incredible range of ingredients and um, you know for all kinds of reasons but things like jellyfish and rabbit heads and um, things that just seem very exotic to westerners so i think that a lot of people just found that very surprising and exciting or revolting <laughs> no i'm intensely curious what is the process like to get each recipe i mean i would say that the process is not totally consistent so the aim is to produce a recipe which sort of reflects as faithfully as i can what i've eaten in china and that's not always very straightforward so sometimes there's a recipe that one particular person has taught me and i'm just trying to reproduce that recipe but often, you know, with a recipe like Yu Xiang Qiezi, my favorite fish fragrant eggplant, I mean, that recipe, there are many different versions of it. You know, people cook it differently. Mm -hmm. So with that, I suppose that I just want to come up with a recipe that will not just be good enough to satisfy any old foreigner, but I would like someone from the region to eat it, to think, hmm, that tastes right. And so the most important part of my process is eating and just tasting and really trying to have a sense of how this dish should taste. And that means 
eating, tasting lots of different versions and having a picture in my mind and in my mouth of what I am trying to recreate. Very interesting. I just want to shed a little bit like to diffuse people's false imagination that you just eat your way to a successful book writer because I traveled with you. The amount of food you were willing to try completely took me by surprise. I, I, I mean it. It's like, how Confucius just keep eating? <laughs> Not like eating so much, but you were willing to try everything. Like, I think you ate my entire month's variety of breakfast in one go. <laughs> That's one. Two is the notes you took, the little drawings of the pig. I still have a picture of that little pig that you had the chef draw for you. See so the amount of notes. What number of notebook are you on now? 150 or something. 150, yeah. So there is a huge amount of systematic effort that I think is behind any success story. Going from there, maybe in the West, am I right to say like before Anthony Bourdain or Gordon Ramsay, like before the 1950s, I don't know any recognized chef names really. Maybe you, you would know more. And that's changed now, right? So there are celebrity chefs. In China today, I don't think I can name one really very famous chef, that household name. No, I mean, I think one of the things that's really um, sort of fascinating and a bit weird about Chinese culture is that you have a culture that's so orientated around food and which people just love eating and in general, People are very discriminating. They take great pleasure. They attach great importance to food. And that's everyone from, mm -hmm. you know, just farmers to very rich gourmets. I mean, I think in general, it's a very foodie culture, right? But at the same time, there's historically been this divide between the sort of literary gentleman who writes about food, the wenren, who sort of has a high social status, and the chef doing all the work the labor who is not. So the sort of great historical cookbooks of China were written by intellectuals, you know, these sort of literary types. So you've got sort of poets and playwrights writing a cookbook, you know, on the side. Um, but we don't have, you know, the words of the chefs of past generations, many of them weren't even literate. And so on the one hand, you have this wonderful sort of collaboration between the sort of gourmet and the chef. So you had, you know, the gourmet gentleman sort of discussing the food with his chef and making precise criticisms and demands and kind of developing dishes this way. So in that sense, it was a collaboration. But at the same time, all the social status went to the, the literary gentleman and not the chef. And so, you know, there are so many dishes in Chinese history which have the name of the sort of educated people like Dongpo pork or dishes that are associated with the Qianlong Emperor or from Yuan Mei's cookbook. There are some which have the name of the cooks and I love these dishes like Mapo Dofu is named after a real woman professional cook, Mrs. Chen. And that's great. And there's also a fish soup from Hangzhou, a song Gung, which is a very lovely fish soup that was cooked in the Song dynasty, so about 800 years ago, by a woman chef, Mrs. Song. But in general, there is a kind of imbalance, yes. And I think that's just part of, you know, China is a culture where 
written language has been very much esteemed and has been the benchmark of culture. Yeah, so I mean, I spend a lot of time in China, really respect chefs as custodians of Chinese culture and as people with great knowledge. And I think they deserve our respect and they work so hard as well. So, yeah, and, and I suppose that, you know, in my books, that's one thing that's quite unusual about what I do, because still in modern China, I have a lot of friends who are food writers from a literary point of view, and I have a lot of friends who are chefs, but I don't know so many people who are both really into the writing and really technical about the food. There's still a bit of a dividing line, and I wish there wasn't really. I think they're both equally important. Mm -hmm. Do you see that changing in China? Will there be emerging in popular culture shaping a few celebrity chefs in China? I mean, there are now some famous internet chefs who've become very popular and probably made a lot of money. And I think also, you know, there was that landmark TV series in 2012, The Bite of China. And it seems that that really sort of encouraged Chinese people to look at their food as being heritage and culture and something really extraordinary and part of civilization. And it has sparked an interest in food writing, in food travel, in the idea of food as culture. And also, I suppose, you know, interestingly, in the West, there seems to be a new generation of young Chinese people who've been educated abroad, who are now starting food businesses, which is really interesting. Mm. Because again, they are, they're people who are, you know, they've had an education and they're going into the food business. And in China, I've also met a few people like that too. Like I met a very interesting young woman from Sichuan who had been educated in America and went back into the family food business. So that's quite unusual. I mean, the thing that makes me really sad in Sichuan at the moment is that the older generation who I knew in the 90s and who are still around, they really know how to cook and they know how to make sausages and laro bacon in the winter and they know how to pickle vegetables and things. But the younger generation are not really learning because they're under such pressure to study all the time. Like, you know, some friends have a little grandson who's about, he's five or six and he goes to school and he comes back and he studies all evening, you know, and what time is there for people to learn to cook? And I just think that, you know, learning to cook, I mean, it's not just culture, it's also very important for health, for well-being. It's a really useful skill. You know, I just wish people would make sure that their children have some time to learn to cook. <laughs> oh, I'm completely with you. Completely. In fact, talk about the difference between buying produce at the farmer's market and the supermarket, right? The farmer's market be fresh, seasonal and bloomy. And supermarket is wasteland, plastic and dried out. And in some ways, this farmer's market image is all my memories of Chinese fresh markets. But you go now, you see China migrating towards this plastic wrapped everything in the supermarket and people are losing connection. We used to laugh when people say like, kids in America don't know hamburgers come from a cow. <laughs> and in China, that's taken lightning speed because everyone's doing, why my, you know, food delivery from shops. How can we reverse that 
Yeah, I mean, in Sichuan, when I first lived there, there was a fresh farmer's market in every neighborhood. I mean, there weren't even any supermarkets. And I think that, you know, in China now, the older generation still often prefer to shop at fresh markets where they can find them. And I would say that even in supermarkets in China, the food tends to be fresher. But again, I think that in order to need fresh ingredients, you have to cook. And as you say, so many younger people are just relying on takeout and, you know, fast food. But then if you're not cooking from scratch, you don't need fresh vegetables and you don't need to go to the market. You then shrink the consumer base of the market. Mm -hmm. In fact, you touched on this a little bit earlier, all the internet celebrities, right? When you think about Chinese, it's Li Ziqi. And also the one I love is Dian Xi Xiaoge. Dian Xi Xiaoge sounds like a man, but it's a she cooking. And the way she uses, you know, bamboo shoots or a big cleaver and pickling plums in Yunnan all remind me of my childhood. And that, I think, partially explains her popularity in China and internationally as well, right? So China now is probably confronting this urge to find reconnection mm. with the land, with the traditional way of eating. You know, certainly, I mean, England is a place that when I was a child didn't really have a very flourishing food culture at all. We had a terrible reputation in Europe for appalling food. And when I was at university, the typical idea of going out and having a good time was going to the pub for hours and hours with nothing to eat apart from crisps and peanuts, you know, terrible. Oh my God. And then having some real junk on the way home, you know, from a van. And I think that's completely changed. And it's very lovely, for example, in the part of London where I live, there are so many people who are making their own pickles, making sourdough bread, growing some vegetables. And also there are lots of small businesses making sort of things like sauerkraut or smoked salmon or sausages, small scale, good food, and also street food. There are small businesses, pop-ups doing chongqing, xiaomian, little noodles, doing shendian, you know, the, the Shanghainese fried baozi buns. And there are also these street food places which have stalls around a central seating area, a bit like a food court but maybe outdoors where young people can go and buy a few things to eat, not excessively expensive, be sociable, have a drink with friends. And so it just seems that food has become part of going out culture and having fun culture, particularly for young people in a way that it wasn't before. But I mean, I think the thing that I find quite funny in China is that these days, some people who are rediscovering cooking as a sort of fun leisure activity are doing things like going to classes, learning how to make Western cakes. You know, they're not learning how to make mapo dofu from their granny. They're learning how to make cakes and biscuits. <laughs> and so it's become a sort of hobby rather than part of life. I think there's still a lack of confidence that if I learn something cost traditionally 50 cents a bowl that could enable me to have a living in today's China, right? The housing prices are higher, about the same level as London. 
in Shanghai. And if I own a noodle shop or a Shenzhen bao shop, I will never own an apartment. That's the dilemma a lot of people in China are facing. They may embrace it as a hobby, but to develop the hobby into a flourishing business or something bigger, I think is the challenge both in their social status and financial status. Well, I suppose that, you know, there have been people who've been very successful in scaling up, like Lao Gan Ma, you know, this, this um, lady from Guizhou who made the famous sauce and now has a sort of international business. And there are also chain restaurants. But it's true, it's very hard with rising rents for people to make much money in small businesses, and that is a problem. I can't help to ask this one question about Chinese food in the West. I walked into this new restaurant that was selling with a big sign, Yunnan noodles, not far from my house. And I was so excited. I'm like, finally, I'm going to get my xiaoguomixian. So I drove my kids there after school and walked in. And there were like five people eating there in a large restaurant. And the menu came up and I saw 50 different dishes on it, probably more. And there was the orange chicken and the beef and broccoli and a few dishes of noodles that I don't recognize. I was heartbroken. <laughs> I was heartbroken. <laughs> like, Well, I mean, I think there are people you know, in both America and Britain who are doing really interesting things with Chinese food. So for example, in New York, the people who did Cafe China and Bird in the Hand, doing very lovely Sichuanese-based food, but with a sort of quite trendy aesthetic and a bit of a sort of old-fashioned feel. There are small businesses in London that are doing really fun things with Chinese food that are both traditional and contemporary, like Poon's London, run by Amy Poon, who, who's a friend of mine. She's the daughter of a very famous Cantonese chef and started a wonton business and doing pop-up restaurants. And so I think there's a new generation of people of Chinese heritage who are also fluent in English and who know very well, whether it's Britain or America, who are able to sort of produce things that both speak to their traditions and to modern Western consumers. And so I think we're getting some really interesting things coming out because I think that, you know, the old fashioned Chinese restaurant food, both in Britain and America, evolved at a time when Chinese food had quite low status, when it was often cooked by people who, you know, they weren't very well equipped to communicate the food. You know, and also in, in America, particularly, they faced terrible discrimination in the early days. And, you know, American Chinese food was forged in a particular historical environment and was quite conservative in what it offered. You know, it was trying to come up with mm -hmm. that was affordable and appealing and not too challenging. And I think we're beyond that now. And there are opportunities, you know, people know more, you know, not just Westerners, foreigners in general are more willing to taste different regional cuisines, more authentic foods. And now you have Chinese people in the West who are very much able to not only produce the food, but also to market it. So I feel quite optimistic about that. I mean, certainly in Britain, Chinese food is totally different. I mean, for example, Sichuanese, which, you know, was not part of the scene. Now in London, we have Sichuanese food, we have Xi'an street snacks, we have some Dongbei flavors. 
And so, you know, anyone who's at all interested in food in somewhere like London can see immediately that Chinese food isn't just sweet and sour pork, which is our equivalent of like beef with broccoli and general says chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. No, I, I share that. And we need to get to your list, Fuchsia's recommendation of places to eat. Well, everything. So the places that I go to regularly in London. So there's a Master Way, which is a wonderful place run by a woman chef from Xi'an who does delicious biang biang noodles and other Xi'an. Oh, I love this. Yeah, and it's very, um, it's quite unusual because it's a really personal place. You know, it's run by someone who is both the owner and the head chef, and she really cares about giving Londoners a taste of her hometown. So that's wonderful. And I'm also completely addicted to Cantonese dim sum. So I love Royal China and Royal China Club. So Huang Chao and Huang Chao Hui, which are very good for, you know, dim sum lunches. And then um, where else do I go? The other place that I really go rather a lot is in Chinatown. It's called Four Seasons. And it's a very simple restaurant, but it does fabulous roast dark, cha shao pork and roast pork. So it's a great place to go and have a plate full of rice with a bit of blanched Chinese cabbage, some barbecued meats and some of the lovely lu shui, the sort of cooking sauce. It's really good value. It's in the centre of London. So it's great if you're going to the theatre or you're going out to do something. And it's just completely delicious. Those are my three most regular. Well, thank you. This is great. Before we go, two gastronomic tours of China with Fuchsia, run by Wild China, are set for 2023. Fingers crossed, we'll all be getting back on the road. And that is in May, covering a few selected cities of China. And in September, deep diving in Yunnan area. Sadly, though, I have to let you know, both are already fully booked and have a wait list. But we still want to encourage you to get on our wait list so you will be the first ones to hear when the trips for 2024 come up. So thanks again. Thank you, Fuchsia. You've just talked me into like, I'm hungry. I'm ready for lunch. Thanks, <laughs> May. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the China Travel Podcast, produced by Wild China Travel and hosted by me, Wild China founder Zhang Mei. For every episode, you can find a summary with timestamps and a list of resources on our website, wildchina.com. If you enjoy this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Wild China Travel or me personally at Wild China May. That is M-E-I. Thank you and see you next time.